I think that this same thing is really a blessing for me to be able to preach here with you because I get to be one among many of you. And I see the work that you all are doing day in and day out. I see the work that this church in combination is doing and the men that preach. And we really do have a body that's full of preachers of God's word. And it's a joy. And it makes me proud to be able to stand up and preach to you, not as a lone voice that's kind of calling out of a void, but as someone that hopefully can lend itself to this harmony that is the preaching of God's word. Um, I'd like to thank Parker for bringing us uh, his sermon on being producers of faith. I'm not sure if he's here. I didn't see him earlier. Um, but uh, but uh, I missed it. I was up in the Boundary Waters, and after asking my wife how Parker did, I knew he did well, not only because she told me he did, but because she said Parker did well. You really, really need to work on your sermon. Um, and so, Parker, thank you. I listened to it. It was wonderful, and it was a real exhortation. Tonight, we're going to continue this practical series on fulfilling the Great Commission with what, in some ways, is a step back. We've been called to this work, this work that has authority to spread our net, to grow, and to bear fruit in others. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the what. This call, this commission, is a call to win others. But to what? When you preach the gospel, when you win others to faith, we need to ask ourselves, what are we winning them to? A simple topic, perhaps, with a simple answer, certainly, yet one that is often answered wrong. And when it is answered wrong, trades strength for weakness. It's one that can trade love for hypocrisy, and at times it trades truth for a lie. So if you'll stand with me as we turn to our scripture from Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when he saw him, they worshipped him. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will be with our night. I pray that you will work through me and speak through me. Be glorified through this time. And I pray that you'll be glorified in this church. May we be a people that answers this call and this commission to spread your word. May we be powerful in Toledo and from there for the rest of the world. Pray that you will, you will work lastingly in the, in, the, in the youth's time in this missions trip they went on. Be with those in the college group that are going to Mexico. And I pray that you will work to spread this commission there as well. And do so in our town and in our homes. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. All right. So in getting into our topic tonight, I'd like to start with a little about me. I am not an animal lover. I'm also not an animal hater either. 
There's just animals I dislike, and then animals I don't dislike. For instance, personally, I'm not a huge fan of cats. I could tell you all the reasons why, but for those of you that share my opinion, you probably already know, right? And for those of you that don't share my opinion, I don't think there's probably anything I can do to sway you at this point. Now, not just cats, I also don't love dogs. As in, they're not my man's best friend. That's not to say that they're cats, because they're not. I can understand having a dog, I'm just not getting one. So, sorry boys. Um, anyways, all this to say, personally, I'm not a huge animal guy. But, professionally, I love animals. <laughs> all creatures equally. In fact, I love them even more equally if they're the type of animals you spend money on. I think every home should have a litter of kittens, a couple dogs, maybe a rabbit. Now, personally, I feel like I already have four animals that run around my house. But, <laughs> professionally, you just can't get enough of them. And I stand by this. I've gone on several occasions to the Humane Society to help better understand the need of animals. I spend my time trying to learn how to better care for them. The thoughts that occupy my head, what is the best way to be prepared for a new litter? Do all dog breeds run fevers at the same temperature? Is there a more comfortable way to take a dog's temperature for the dog and for the person taking it? <laughs> what are common canine and feline diseases? What information should a new pet owner be given? Now, why is this something I think about? Well, if you haven't guessed it, or perhaps you already know, it's my job. It's my business. I create and sell animal health and breeding supplies. Weird, I know, I've been told. Uh, so I may not naturally be an animal person, but I am one to this work that I'm doing. And in this sense, I have become one. Why? Because I see the value in it. It makes me money. I don't do it because I love animals. There's no heart-moving agenda. There's certainly among you that would do this. One of my neighbors is this person. She spends her time saving cats, and she's a wonderful lady. And I appreciate that, but that's just not me. Um, if you were to ask me to watch your dog, I might because I like you, but I probably wouldn't be the best person to do it. And, you know, if I went to another job, another profession, my passion for animals would go with it. Now, if I were to take this and draw comparisons between it and our topic tonight on winning others and what are we winning others to, I would say that I have gone much further down the road of animal care than I never, ever normally would have and ever would have thought that I would have because I know what I am one to. My family's been living off of it for a number of years now. It's something that initially, you know, I questioned, but I was willing to take the risk and willing to kind of get into it. But even now, I'm confident in it. I actually enjoy some elements of it because I know that the end is going to be worth the work. So, in comparing it to tonight's topic, while this comparison falls drastically short in many areas, what remains is this. If we are a people that is called to make disciples of all nations, 
If we are called to win others for Christ, we must know what we are winning them to. Many have tried and failed because they have won others to the wrong thing. And still, even more, have misunderstood what this call to win others to is, and so they've never tried. In our desire to be disciples of the Great Commission, this cannot be us. So, we turn to our familiar passage to answer what this what is. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. You, therefore, go... Baptizing in my name, teaching what? Obedience. The what in this commission is obedience. This is what we are winning others to. As a family, we've been reading through First and Second Kings. Much of these chapters go into detail on all the various rules of the kings of Israel and Judah a bunch of other things, some stories, a lot of things are different, some things really seem incredibly different from from one reign to the next. But in all of these, there is a common thread. There's a defining characteristic of each of these kings and rulers' rules. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Abijah became king over Judah, and he committed all the sins that his father had done before him. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nadab became king of Israel and did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Basha, evil. Zimri, evil. Asa, good. Omri, evil. Ahab, more evil than all those that came before him. Jehoshaphat, good. Ahaziah, evil. It's gotten to the point where every time we start a chapter that begins with a new ruler, the kids guess whether the ruler is good or evil. And it's gotten to the point where they kind of default to just saying evil because a lot of the times they're correct. And on it goes. This was the preeminent defining characteristic in these chapter, in these chapters. Either these men did what was evil and walked in their own way, or they did what was good and obeyed the Lord. This was the measure by with which these men were judged. This was the measure we see even after it looking in Judges, when God sent judges to many of these men and to the people and called them, obey the Lord, turn from the Asheroth poles, Turn from the high places, turn from the idols of your wives and your families, and obey me. This was how they were judged. And yet, we feel we are different. We're not people that are judged by this same measure. For we are children of grace. And this call to obedience doesn't apply. Or at least it's not the measure by with which we are judged. Not so. Romans 2.13. It is to those that obey the law 
that will be called righteous in God's sight. Those that obey the law. So here we reach this call to win others. But what we must win them to is a life of obedience. And honestly, this seems like a hard sell. We feel it's a message that won't be well received, and it's not an attractive way to share the gospel. So what do we do? Well, if we spread it, often we cushion it. And this has become the basis for a religion that does not require obedience. And it is a message that is pervasive. Time and time again, we see this practice at work all through history. Even this morning, we were talking about the, the, the revival, and we talk about Luther, and we hear about these people calling for grace, which is true. But the baseline of that is that there must be obedience. And through history, we see this, and we call it different things. We make labels, like today in our current church, and we call it seeker-sensitive. But what does this label do? This is a label that serves to set you and I apart from a danger that isn't just working a state away. It isn't just working in this church. It's at work in our very homes. For unlike the sin that caused the man to beg on the street corner, this is a sin that serves to make our children look holy and our lives look clean. Make no mistake, God calls us to a life that first and foremost is a life of obedience. And then what does he do? He demands that we call others through this great commission to that same life of obedience, teaching them to obey everything he has commanded us. So, in recognition of this danger, where in our life, where in our witness, must we be on guard? When we think about how we do this, how we spread God's word, we ask ourselves, what do we use as this cushion? Well, we must be on guard against a witness that instead of winning others to a life of obedience, would win them to ourselves. This is a form of pride that sets us in place of Christ and ultimately denies the power of the Spirit at work in the elect in favor of our own power and influence over others' salvation. In other words, come to Christ because of something that I have, something that makes me attractive that you should want. There are many things that we use to fill this, and there are a big variety, but perhaps one of the most dangerous things, and one of the things that as I was writing this, I just kept coming back to, is money. Money allows us to set up a life that's clean, to buy our way out of hardships that often God is using to push us in closer reliance of him. So for like manna in the wilderness, God wants us to be a people that cling to him in need each day. Yet what are we willing to do? We constantly are more willing to look at the story of Joseph and say, well, God actually wants me to be smart and build up my wealth while I have the means. Or look at the parable of the good steward and see dollars 
when the currency that they're speaking of is faith. And so frequently, what we do with others is we associate their wealth, the state of their finances, with that of their faith. And if we are pursuing wealth ourselves, then this is the measure by with which we would like to be judged. And by this, we put our money on the altar in place of Christ when God says, I require obedience over sacrifice. And what we have done is we've looked down on those in our midst that struggle. Those that struggle with finances yet bear a legacy of faith and yet honor those who've lost their children to the success that they saved up to provide. Yes, God does bless sometimes, sometimes us with money. We see it. There are men and women that have money and have chosen to give it in order to build an eternal kingdom. And this is faith. We have many of these examples for us here in this body, and we honor them for the right reasons. But make no mistake, faith and money are not the same thing. Money can be the foundation that we are tempted to build this faith on. We see it as something that's important in our lives, yet God often talks of money like it's a small thing, saying instead, rely on me and be faithful in these small things. So as we look towards this call to have witness, this commission, and we ask ourselves, do we want a witness that's powerful? One way to do this is give up money. Give it up when you have the opportunity. To some of us, God has even called to a life of very little money. And so, blessed us by the ability to more rely on him each day. And this is a strength to that witness. Don't look down on them and don't despise it if it is you. For by this, what you'll do is you'll show others a God that richly provides through obedience. Now, money is not the only thing that we use to make our faith look more attractive. But as I thought about it and as I looked into it, what it is is something that underlies many of the other things. And often, it is a means to this vanity. But whatever you're holding up in your life to make this commission attractive, whether it's your appearance, how you look, come to me because I look this way, whether it's your home, whether it's your intelligence, whether you think I can beat others into trusting in God through debating them. Maybe it's your accomplishments. God doesn't need you to be attractive to win others to Christ. And if Christ is our example, then we should also look to Christ and what he says, what is said in Isaiah 53 about Christ being someone that wasn't someone to look at. God commands obedience and he demands us to call others to the same. And in obeying the word, we will be the model of obedience that is a reflection of Christ rather than trying to create our own better image in his place. So, what is it that you hold up in your life to make this call more attractive? Or, what do you see as valuable in others that has no value to God? 
We don't need to win others to ourselves first. We are called to win them to obedience to God. And doing so, we must not make ourselves the measure by with which we are judged. If we do this, that measure is perfection. And we're only setting ourselves in the place of Christ. And this will show us to be hypocrites. How many of you, how many of us, have been willing to elevate others to a level that after seeing their failures, have pushed you away from Christ? Or, in doing so, have only seen hypocrisy in the church? Well, at times, this may be a failure in others. We need to recognize that the failure also lies with us for setting them in the place of Christ. As mothers and fathers, this danger is in our home. It's not something that we can look at and feel as a Pharisee that it is something that they have that we are thankful we don't have to deal with. Is it more important that your children like you or that they obey you? Do you fall into rut, the rut that believing that friendship with your children will ultimately has to lead them to faith? God demands that we call others to obedience, and this includes your children too. It certainly isn't easy. It can be very hard, especially since we're often leading through our own failure. And in this call, you certainly may feel that you're losing control of your children. But is it not better that we obey in this, and by doing so, give our children to the protection of the Lord? For we see in countless places through Scripture that this command also comes with a promise. To our children, Ephesians 6.1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. And to all, Psalm 128.1, Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. As you're sitting there, if you love scripture, you probably can think through many, many more places with promises for obedience. This is the God we serve, one that asks obedience of us and makes promises to take care of us. For those of you that think your child is too old to be called to obey, it still happens to me. And while the Bible does speak of shifting influence and roles with age, it doesn't diminish the influence of godly parents. We as parents must be convinced of the power of God with our children and to those that are dear to us. We win them not to our home, not to ourselves, not to our friendships, but to God. The defining difference between a home that bears no fruit and a home that is godly is a father that says, in my home, we will fear and obey the Lord. Is this your home? Through this, what we're doing is we're calling God to work in power. Work in power in our relationships, work in power in our homes, and work in power in, ch in our children and those that we love. So the means of this power is through the word. Therefore, in doing so, what we must do is be on guard against not only denying the power of God, but also denying the power of God's word. In addition to winning others to ourselves in place of obedience, 
we try to protect them from the word of God, thinking that the word is a message that is too harsh to be given to the uninitiated. And so what we do is we win them to something other than truth. In the cult that is Mormonism, men and women are pushed to at least on a surface level be very attractive to others. Much money has been spent to make this church look like something that you and I can relate to. Some of you may recall a campaign they did many, other, many years ago. It went something like this, you know, it'd be on TV or the radio. I'm this normal person. I like art. I like ping pong. Maybe I'm a doctor. You know, I'm attractive. And also, I'm a Mormon. And this message is one that's been spread. Look at me. I'm attractive. I have things you want. Now follow me. I listened to a podcast called How I Built This. This features a number of business founders, and I found that an overwhelming number of these founders are Mormon. This is how they must grow. Through amassing wealth, through gaining influence, through being attractive, and then saying, hey, look at me, now follow me. But one thing I find interesting is that while they're very open about the fact that they're Mormon and maybe about the mission that they take place in and all of their accomplishments, very little is ever said of the substance of their faith. They never speak of the secret ceremonies, of the magic underwear, of the doctrines they hold. The truth to them is a very closely guarded secret that only can be revealed as you come close. As you make commitments, as you show that you're invested and already want this, they must win others to themselves and hide the true nature of their faith. For fear of what? For fear of rejection. Why? Because they don't have a word that has power. We are not called to this faith. We have a word that does have power. And we are not called to a faith that is secret. Many false faiths like Mormonism seek to win you to something other than their true nature. Perhaps you know someone that's even been sucked into this. We must be careful that we don't protect others from the word or that our lives become a work that is done in secret. Honestly, God doesn't value your privacy like you do. This call to obedience is a call to be in the light. And to use this word is to have a light unto that path. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. What do we see here? The word of God isn't a fishing lure that needs your bait. It's not one that needs to hide behind you for power. It doesn't need you to hold back on things until people are more ready, until they're more initiated. We must be men and women that are willing to speak the word of God wherever you are, trusting that that word will go out in power. 
Are you someone that trusts in this power? Because while you are not a model that stands in place of Christ, your life is called to be a reflection. You should be known to others by this obedience. Obedience to his law in school, whether in actions with friends or perhaps missing events because you honor the Sabbath, does obedience at work cause you to have to change your speech? Rather than being known as a mocker, being known as someone that loves. Rather than lazy, someone with integrity. As a mother, is your time spent building and encouraging others up or worrying about what they think of you or what they might think about you, especially if that fear is over something that you have made a decision in faith to obey the Lord. To be obedient to the word is to have a true confidence in life. Also, one thing that's important to mention, when others call you to obedience, you should be very careful not to be quick to dismiss them because you believe that what they're doing is the work on your conscience that is reserved exclusively for the Holy Spirit. You know, this week, I heard that Nick Spiewak told a group of men, hey, don't go see this movie. It's not appropriate. Keep in mind, the call for obedience is not one that should be dismissed solely because you may believe you are beholden only to your conscience. Listen to others that do things like this, for this is a great example of this commission. And this call is one that is present not in one stage of life, not with certain people. It is a call that is present in every area of our life. And by this, in every area of our witness. We must see the power of the word to call others to a life of obedience. Then, to be able to call others to obey the word of God, we must know the word and call them to know it too. So many times, we look at the word as if it's something that pertains exclusively to us. How will this affect me? How will it be something that changes my life? Where will it bring happiness to me? And we do the same to others. We treat others as if the word only pertains to them, their happiness, their life, their satisfaction. There was this guy I worked with for a number of years when I was younger. He was very smart. And although kind of in a low-level position, he was the type of guy that was respected by all the engineers around him. He had very little in the realm of aspirations, though. He seemed content, content with his job, content with his semi-professional Magic the Gathering career, content with his girlfriend, content with his cats. And you know, I had a pretty hard time witnessing to him because all I could see was how the word pertained to his life. All I could see is what the word meant to him and why his life needed it. And while his life absolutely did need it, this is not the call alone. We must be winning others to knowing God and what he requires of us. Through this, 
others will learn what God calls their life to be. Through knowledge of God's word, others will be one to obedience to the Lord. So, in closing, it may be simple. Yes, it is simple. This call to obedience is the defining command that God has issued to that of his children. For us to be a people that seeks to obey and win others to obedience. Just as we call our children to obey us, God calls us to obey him. And so, we win others, not to ourselves, but to obedience. Not through hiding and protecting from God's commands, but through knowledge of his word. Some of the most powerful things I've seen God do, some of his most powerful works I've seen in my life, in my family's life, and in this church, have come through often very simple and very small acts of obedience. Now, this is not a means to our righteousness, nor is it a replacement for the free gift of Christ, but make no mistake, it is required. So, as you are going, spreading your net, and calling others to this faith, remember that this is a call to obedience. Do you call others to obey the Lord? Do you call your friends to obey the Lord? Even if you don't think that that's something that they feel they need, do you call your coworkers to obey the Lord? Do you do it in love? Do you say in your home, in my home, we obey the Lord? Think of ways you should be doing this. Obey and watch God bless it with fruit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for giving us this command to obey, and I thank you for your promise to provide for us, to give us joy. I thank you for how you provide for our children and show us in so many ways in our life that we can be happy in this, that we can have confidence in your providence. I thank you for this, and I pray that it will be a people that is willing to obey in our lives, and that we'll be a people that's willing to call others to obey. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And... <laughs>